Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. We're in 1 Samuel 15. We're picking up where we left off two weeks ago. We were at the, uh, the end of chapter 14. If you just go back a couple verses, there's this summary of Saul being immersed in kind of endless wars where he's harassing his enemies, but he's not conquering his enemies. And, and I suggested that that's not only history, but it's also a great like, idea of the spiritual image of people unrooted in God, not obeying God, find themselves in constant battles, constant persecution, constant struggles in their life. And Saul is, looks like that. Saul has self-glorified himself. He's propped himself up as a king without the king backing him up. And he's, he's proved irreverent when it comes to the things of God. Um, and he's built all around him a bunch of people that tickle his ears, except for Samuel. So he's built his own kingdom, and he ends up in lifetime struggle because that's what happens when you build your own kingdom without God. So that was the end of chapter 14. In verse 47 there, you can see it was his rule, his enemies. He, he turned things. The only good thing about Saul's kingship is his son, Jonathan, who seems to be a little more sensitive to the things of God and respectful of those. So in verse 48, he gathered a host, uh, which in the Hebrew is strength. He gathered his own strength. And 52, verse 52, there was sore war for the rest of his kingship. So that's the context of this chapter, chapter 15. Samuel's rule, if you go back to chapter 7, verse 13, he made peace, and there was peace in Israel while Samuel was ruling. Now under Saul's rule, they have this constant conflict thing happening. With weak leadership comes constant conflict and just disasters everywhere you go. But then we get to chapter 15, and we're going to see the disintegration of, of Saul's leadership as king. Verse 1, Samuel also said to Saul... The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish the Amalek for what he did to Israel. <clears throat> I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. How he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So I've actually been working on chapter 15 for about four weeks because we come, this is the first time with Israel's battles so far in the Bible, <clears throat> they were to drive people out of Israel, which meant there was a way of escape. They could go forward and be driven just like a flock of, of livestock. And the Lord was carving out this territory. And here we get to the first time in the Bible where the Lord directly commands the Israelites to kill babies, right? And to kill infants and to kill um, ox and sheep and camel and donkey. Um, so there's a context for this that I want to get to, but I'm really struggling with like, okay, how do we respond to this? 
as life-living Christians. Like we adore life, we stand for life, we stick up for God's creations. And here's an instance where we see the God doing this. And this often gets dismissed. This is one of the most common critiques of the Old Testament. Well, I can't believe in a God that tells people to kill babies and, and oxes. And now, for the first time, we've actually hit this. Let's note that it's taken until 1 Samuel chapter 15 to find the first example of that. When the critic will often say it's all over the New Testament. It's not all over the New Testament. It's very select instances where we see that happen. But this is one of them, so we get to deal with this tonight. Um, I'm going to go through it verse by verse until we hit, get to verse 3, but let's start with verse 1. Samuel also said to Saul, when it says also there, it implies that Samuel has been coming to Saul with a few different things. And in this transition, this is just one of the things that Samuel shared with Saul. We don't necessarily all of, know all of the other things that he said. We also don't know from verse 1 what the timestamp is. We do know that the writers of, of ancient Hebrew were not as concerned with chronological order. So this could have well happened earlier in Saul's kingship when he first got going or when he first got started, or it could be right at the end of his kingship. We just don't know, and the context doesn't tell us that. Um, we do know this, that Samuel comes and talks to Saul, and there's no record of any pageantry around Samuel. He's just a guy that represents God, and he walks in without an entourage or without any, any kind of... Uh, propping himself up like we've seen Saul do. Um, but, and, and then here's the other piece with verse 1. Even though Saul has been arrogant and, and irreverent and disrespectful of God's or, orders and commands, it's also graceful that God still works with him. By sending Samuel to Saul, a defiant king, God's still willing to work with Saul. And the fact that he gives them this opportunity to do this work, to fight one of God's battles is actually a, almost an act of mercy and grace on the part of God. Like he's still willing to work with this guy who's screwed up in so many ways. So he cares enough to give Saul a chance um, and doing this. So instead of fighting all of his battles from the end of 14, God's giving him a chance to fight one of God's battles. Um, so Samuel comes in and he talks to Saul and he presents it this way. The Lord has sent me. That's a humbling statement. Samuel's basically saying he's an errand boy. I'm just coming on behalf of God. He says, to anoint you. He's reminding Saul that Saul didn't make himself a king. God made him a king. Another statement where Saul should be humbled. To heed the voice of God. Even though Samuel is just a, a human, Saul's just a human too. And because he didn't make himself, he should actually be listening to the God who put him where he is. So I think Samuel's trying to help him get humble. It's not going to work, but there's some efforts here to remind Saul of where he came from. Um, and at some level, like we should all think of this. We're all adopted children. None of us put ourselves where we're at. God has done a lot in our lives to put us where we're at. So this respect for God's gift is part of how we humble ourselves before God. Look at what God has done. Verse 2, I will punish Amalek. So God is going to do this. Whether or not Saul's on board to help him is not necessarily going to change the fact that God's bringing judgment on this people. So we need to know, and I'm going to do a little bit of reminders here, uh, the word punish there is to reckon or to attend to in the Hebrew. Another way to translate that word is to say to remember or to pay attention to something. So it's interesting because it gets translated punish, but in verse 2 it could equally be I will remember Amalek. And then the following sentence 
seems to lead a lot more towards the, the translation, remember, because he points out, remember how they attacked the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. That's when they were weak and helpless. They did not have a military. They were not able to defend themselves. And here's a group of people that attacked them in that situation. So there's a context to this. Back in Exodus 17, I'm just going to read this so we don't have to flip there. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek under, from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn... The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Exodus 17, verse 14. God promised it back then. How long has it been since Moses? You got to go through Joshua. You got to go through all the judges. And at the end of a 450-year judges period, God has essentially waited 450 to 500 years to carry out his promise on Amalek. This was your argument. God gave them a chance to repent. They've had some opportunities. But instead of repenting, you know what they've done during that 500 years? I'm just picking on Amalek a little bit here. So we understand what this command is for. In Numbers 14, when the Canaanites attacked Israel to wipe them out, guess who allied with them? Amalek did. In Judges 3, when the Moabites attacked Israel, guess who had allied with them? The Amalek did. And in Judges 7, when the Midianites attacked Israel, who was right there next to them? The Amalek were next to them. The Amalek have, throughout history, chosen to side with anybody who's against Israel because there's some beef that they have. So we have to wonder, well, where's the beef? And that's not a Wendy's commercial. They're the, they are historically the first to attack God's people because they hate God's people. And they hate God's people because God chose them. The Amalek are a, a tribe within the Edomites. And if you go back even further than Moses... The Edomites were the ones that traded their birthright for a bowl of soup, red, red soup, in the, if we translate that right. And Esau was bitter at Jacob getting the birthright, and his children were bitter with Jacob's children, and that bitterness has continued all the way down. And the Amalek were the tribe of the Edomites that seemed to take that as their personal mission as a tribe, that at every opportunity to destroy Israel, they were going to take it. And they did over 500 years. So Amalek is this uh, grandson of Esau, the Edomites of the Edomite tribe, and they've made this consistent attack on Israel. So in verse 3, it says, Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. This is the word utterly destroy there in the Hebrew is karam. It means to ban or to devote something or dedicate it. So when he says utterly destroy, it's to dedicate, like you dedicate a sacrifice to be on a burnt offering, and the whole thing goes up to heaven. You don't keep any of it. But that's a dedicated sacrifice. So there's actually kind of a religious overtone of what's going on here. The judicial action against Amalek has been decided. God has judged these people. And that utterly destroy them is in the same vein as a burnt offering. You're going to just, these people need to be wiped off the earth. This is what God did with Noah and the ark, remember? Like the world had gone so corrupt and so evil that God came in and said, for his plan to continue, he's got to start fresh with Noah's family. At this point in history, God doesn't need to wipe out the whole planet, but he is passing judgment on the Amalek. But it's the exact same kind of judgment that he passed on the earth with Noah's time. So God's getting a little more selective with how he does it. This spare nothing attitude 
has to do with getting rid of a group of people that continually come back generation after generation to attack Israel. So for God's plan through Israel to go forward, the Amalek have to kind of go away. Now here's the thing. They don't go away, and this will continue to be a problem for Israel as we go forward in history too. So this idea that we mortify the flesh, Romans 8.13, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Same idea. To dedicate yourself to the Lord is to abolish sin out of your life. Get rid of it. Go after it with a surgical precision and get sin out of your life. Your work for the kingdom will not begin until you do battle with your own flesh, according to Paul. The work for Israel to move forward has to deal with this group of Amaleks that are continuously a problem in, in their history. There's nothing gentle about this word, <laughs> this, this karam, and it gets used, guess how many times in this passage? Seven. It is a divine perfection. It's a divine judgment that's being passed in here. So God's decision to eliminate an entire group of people, even their pets, and some of those pets are cute, I bet. So this idea that they're going to give this group of people up completely is not a pretty task. Like this is an ugly thing that's being asked of Saul, and God's giving it to Saul as, as a task for him to do. But I think we need to be careful that when God makes this judgment, he does it 500 years after he promises to do it. That is not somebody acting in rage or hate or some sort of petty jealousy. So when we get a picture of God, this is a long-suffering God that has put up with his people being attacked for a long time. Another image of God here is that you can say, well, this is an angry God that's hateful and mean. Yet the language here of utterly destroy, karam, is a dedication or a sacrificial kind of language. This is, a, this is an execution. This is not a murder. Do, do you get the difference? There's nothing fun or joyful about an execution, but it has to get done. So that's kind of God's approach to this. You're going to destroy these people because it needs to get done. It's amazing how non-believers use one sentence and use it to paint the entire Old Testament. And that's the part that's kind of a baffling for me because it says, do not spare them. So people struggle with this. What kind of God would eliminate an entire group of people? The kind of God that's judged that those people are up to no good and they're going to continue to attack God's people in the future. So by the time we hit 1 Samuel, we already know that God has a heart of mercy. We already know that all of these tribes have had a chance to join Israel, not just to not attack them, but to join them. We know that God's heart has been one of mercy and grace and sovereignty by the use of the language of drive them out. Um, and we know that he's had patience with these Amalekites and their four different attacks. And every one of those attacks, the effort was to eliminate the people of Israel. They were trying to do to Israel what God's commanding Saul to do to them. So there's this idea of what's going on. They were the original anti-Semites on the earth. And they have a tradition of it. So how do Christians deal with this? And this is the part that, that, frankly, I struggle with this myself. But I struggle with this isn't a satisfactory line of thinking. So I, I, I want to unpack this, that I found that there were four different Christian responses to why does God command the killing of pets and children. Because I think we have to answer this with our friends and family, Right? This is something we need to be able to answer and to do it with some confidence. So I'm going to take a few minutes with that and we'll move through the rest of the chapter fairly quickly. 
but when somebody says, I can't serve a God that destroys things, even in the name of righteousness, a simple answer to that question is, then what God do you serve? Of all the options of gods, including just worshiping yourself, which one is better than Yahweh? Which one's better than the almighty God of the Old Testament? If you're going to worship a God, who do you worship? Well, I don't worship any gods at all. That's not true. Then you worship yourself because you think you're bigger than any God that's, been, that's out there. So one of the things for me is that, that idea. So option number one, is God a moral monster of sorts? And, and, and I know for some of you this isn't a huge struggle, so bear with the rest of us that want to roll with this. Um, this is Paul Copan's argument, that the word destroy here is hyperbolic language. All right? So this is one of the Christian arguments on this. It's not literal language. God doesn't mean to literally kill their pets. He means to just get them out of Israel as much as you can, and it's kind of a, a, this exaggerated language that's not meant to be carried out to the letter. So keep in mind that throughout the Old Testament so far, these nations were to be driven out. So why has God changed the command with the Amalekites, right? Um, so in that image, in the Paul Copan argument, this is just an image of sin, like we need to get rid of personal evils in our life. And that's how we're supposed to hear this. It, it falls in the vein of people saying that the Old Testament is, is imagery, it's not actual history. And Agog, the king of the Amaleks, stands for the sin that we leave in our lives that comes back to haunt us. So there's this idea that Satan destroys and he brings devastation, and that means God's people have to act strongly against sin and evil. So that's one interpretation with this passage is that it's metaphorical, kind of. It's, it's just a, it's an exaggerated language that we find in the Old Testament. Option number two. And you know me, I, people get frustrated with this. I'm not going to tell you. You'll figure out what I think on these as we go through them. But option number two, God is sovereign over humans. This is the second argument. Um, so when God chooses, and here he chooses Israel as his tool for judgment, God's removing a culture that would otherwise hinder God's plans on earth. Verse 33, um, if you skim down, um, there's actually the killing of babies that God's accused of here. But as we'll see later, this is exactly what Agog is accused of, which means prior to this command, the Amaleks were already out killing Israelite babies. So they were doing exactly this to God's people. So when you go to the eye for an eye principle, the idea is God's people are simply in doing an eye for eye punishment or consequence. And God's sovereign over that process. They broke the law, so the law is going to be applied to them. So that's the second argument. <laughs> Third argument. I struggle with this. Again, I already said I'm not a big fan of this argument. But it's an argument. It's frankly uh, highly popular in the Catholic, <clears throat> in the Catholic tradition. <clears throat> a little more with Lutherans or a Anglicans. God did this, and we trust God in good faith that God's simply a bigger entity than we are. And if God said this was necessary, we just trust him and believe him. And even if we struggle with the idea that God wipes out a group of people here, we agree, at least agree on the point that there are some people that needs to be put down throughout history. So think of the Huns, right? The Mongolian hordes, <clears throat> the Nazis, American Southern slavery culture. Sometimes there's ways of life and people groups that need to just get eliminated. So that idea is, 
would it be truly a good God if he allowed these people to continue? That's the flip side of the I struggle with this argument. So yes, God commands this entire people group to get killed, but what if he didn't? And what would the evil look like if those people were allowed to continue on the earth at full strength? Right? So that's part of the answer we don't necessarily know. Option number four, this is the one I like. Keep reading the book. So option number four is you're taking this way out of context. Just keep reading and you'll find out what happens next. God might com command it to happen, but Saul doesn't actually wipe the people out, right? So when God gets accused of doing this sort of thing, but this sort of thing never actually happens, well, that's a whole different situation. So the consequences of this are horrible, um, but we're going to see that like the Amaleks in history, go through history, actually there's future attempts on Israel to wipe them out, and it happens at the middle of that attempt, happens to be descendants of a god, or this king of the Amaleks. So this idea and these pieces coming together and you start looking at these, God still judges nations, and he has through history. So just a few examples of nations that have risen and fallen based on God's judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah, he's already done it once. And he, with Sodom and Gomorrah, remember Abraham was arguing, like if there's even one righteous person, and God's like, yeah, I'll hold up my judgment for one righteous person. If that's true with Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah, and he pulled, took the time to pull that percent two angels to get a righteous person out of there, then when he brings judgment, it's just and it's fair. And he has a history of being just and fair. What does that say about the Amalekites? And we're going to see later in the chapter that God still pulls a group of people out of these cities before he passes judgment on them. So there's a surgical precision to God's judgment. And I like that perspective a little bit. Jesus answers in John 18, 36, my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from hence. So when we join the kingdom of Jesus Christ, we're really not worried about this planet's politics anymore. Israel was in a different covenant. They were worried about which nations would try to wipe out the people that are holding God's law and, and stewarding that law forward. But God still, even since Jesus, God still judges nations. Persia, Egypt, Greece, Rome, Spain, these great empires, they, they fought against God's people, and today they're gone. Yes, there's still a country called Spain, but the massive Spanish conquest of the world, it's gone. You can even say the same thing of France, England. What's the next great empire on earth that's going to abandon the will of God and watch that empire shrivel up and die? They'll have a few monuments, but they're not going to be global powers anymore. Because God will move his plan forward regardless of who's serving him and who's not. Does that make sense? So when we go through this, like, I hope that helps a little bit on like, how do you handle this idea of God judging a people? And, and so there's a few different arguments on how God judges people. I struggle with it. Keep reading. Uh, God is God and we are not. And this is all metaphorical, which I'm not a big fan of. You know that. Um, but I, but th those are different things that Christians use to kind of handle this this perspective. So we will keep reading because we're going to finish the chapter. Um, so Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Teliaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay wait in the valley. 
So this is the largest army that we've seen Israel have in the Bible so far. That's a respectable army that Saul has gathered unto himself. Laying in wait, he shows that he's using some military strategy. If anything with Saul, he knew how to fight. He knew how to pick fights and pick battles, and he's doing it his whole career. Telaim is on Israel's southern border in the Negev Desert. In other words, this is kind of crap territory. Like, nobody actually wants this land. So it's a conflict spot, but it's not really a a spot you'd want to live in, and really nobody lives there today. It's it's a vacant desert kind of thing. Uh, Verse 6, Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from amongst the Amalekites. So again, we see God just surgically getting his people out of there before judgment shows up, right? And this is one of the reasons we don't have to worry. If we love the God with our heart, we can expect that God will protect and guard us in those kinds of situations. So the Kenites back in Judges 1.6, we saw they were the descendants of Moses' father-in-law. And remember, he didn't want to join Moses, but Moses was still on good terms with them. So it's a separate group from Israel. Um, but they're a group that was friendly to Israel and kind. The Am- well, again, this shows us something about the Amalekites. They don't have an issue living with the Kenites. They only have an issue with God's people, right? But they seem to get along with other nations around them. So here's God pulling those people out. We see that from Genesis to Revelation, that's a consistent principle of the Lord God Almighty. He protects his people, and he guards the people that favor them. So um, the mention of showing kindness, this is how God responds to people that show kindness. He gets them out before the judgment. That the Lord your God will set you on high above all nations on the earth. Deuteronomy 28.1. This is what he's going to do with Israel. He's going to set them on high. Go depart uh, shows this. Saul's not acting in rage. He's doing a job. He's not just wildly shouting and charging at the gates. He's doing this fairly judicially. Um, In other words, it's an execution. It's not a slaughter. Like they're doing this really purposefully and intentionally. Verse 7, Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agog, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed, that's that same word, all of the people with the edge of the sword, but Saul and the people spared Agog with the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, fluffy is safe for now, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. In other words, Saul disobeys God. He was supposed to, he doesn't do it. But everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. So the things that weren't worth anything, like babies, he destroys, but he saves the livestock and the king. And why would you save a king? Because that's kind of a badge of honor for a king in the ancient world, is to make the other king your slave. So we see some records of that in in secular texts. Uh, It was just kind of how, so so Saul's behaving like the kings of the world. When it says Havilah to Shur, that's moving east to west across the Sinai Peninsula. So draw a big line across it, and he's driving these people down into Egypt. Um, They're fulfilling part of God's command, but not all of it. Um, And this is where we can see that, like, read on. This is what happens next. So I'm going to quickly just, the idea that Agog gets kept means that the leader of these evil people are still around. So in Esther chapter 3, verse 1, we see a character called 
Haman, and he's called Agagite. He's a descendant of this guy. And if you know the story of Esther, what does Haman try to do? Kill all the Jews. He tries absolute genocide on the Jewish people. And he actively goes after them. Why does he do it? Because he hates the Jewish people. And it's the tradition with these folks. So he forces them to bow, which is just like Satan evil kind of stuff. And Mordecai refuses to bow. So in his refusal to bow, Haman tries to get them all killed. This is Esther 3.5. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage to him, like how evil is that? I want you to pay homage to me, and if you don't, I'm going to kill you. Haman was filled with wrath. So with the Amalekites, it is about wrath. And he disdained, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all of the Jews who were throughout the entire kingdom of Assyrius or Persia, and the people of Mordecai. He didn't just go after Mordecai, he went after all of them. This is why God wanted them killed. He didn't want these assaults on his people. So the word within, in this passage is not uh, the word that we saw back in verse 3. When it comes to Haman and Mordecai, the word destroy there is a different Hebrew word, shamad. That word implies annihilation, devastation, and it's rooted in rage, hate, and anger. So when God's people they do it, they're doing it very judicially. But when we see the Amalekites or their descendants through Haman doing it, they do it out of rage and anger, right? So under this ear of Haman, they almost do it, and they successfully move this forward. I won't wreck the rest of Esther as a story. You can go read it yourself. But God intervenes and saves them, and he has to save them from these people. Verse 9, it says, but Saul... That's not a good thing when God does something and then you see but before your name. You're usually in contrast to God. Um, and this idea of unwilling to utterly destroy them. It's sloppy. We're going to see in 1 Samuel chapter 30 um, that it mentions uh, Amalekites that escape this persecution or this attack. So even though they chase them across the Sinai, there's a bunch of them that get away. So we'll see later in the Bible, 1 Chronicles chapter 4 also mentions Amalekites. They don't kill all the Amalekites. So there's survivors, they remain. Um, and when they keep this loot or this livestock, that's Saul's army wanting to get paid for their work. This is how ancient armies got paid, is when you conquered a people, you took all their stuff. And then those soldiers would be able to provide for their family. In this instance, God asked them to not do this for pay. That's an act of sacrifice. So he's asking Saul's army to do something for no loot and no enjoyment. To slaughter a people should not have a reward built into it. He didn't want the Israelites to get to be bloodthirsty or warmongering because there's money to be made in it. That was the Amalekites. That's the Midianites, the Canaanites. They were supposed to be a different kind of people, and instead of getting profit off judgment, they're not supposed to take joy in this judgment. So to utterly destroy them is to not get your paycheck at the end of the thing, but God's asking them to do it anyways. So they keep the good, they destroy the bad, basically doing God's word only to the degree to which they liked doing God's word. And this is part of the problem. And this is, as Christians, we do this all the time. I'll follow the word of God as long as it's convenient for me. And as soon as there's something that's inconvenient, well, I'm just going you know, like, to deal with that differently. Right? I'll be a Christian, but only in the ways that benefit me. I'm going to keep the good stuff and throw the bad stuff. 
or I'll I'll put in I'll pull some of these things, but I'm not going to worry too too much if I got a little sin left in my life. And this is kind of we do it. Saul isn't alone in doing this. Uh, the descendants of these folks uh, will face God's judgment later in the Bible. Jeremiah two, Ezekiel thirty five, the entire book of Obadiah, Malachi chapter one. God will deal with the Amalekites. He's not going to get it done through Saul, and they're going to continue to be a problem. So probably the last time we see these folks is in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. Herod the Great is an Edomite, and a lot of scholars believe he is also an Amalekite. What did Herod the Great do? He killed babies. That's what he's known for in the New Testament. He tried to slaughter all the babies and hit the Messiah as one of them. Why did he do it? Because he wanted everybody to worship him and not a new Messiah. So how much evil could be avoided if Saul would have just obeyed God at this stage? As distasteful as the command was, how much could have been avoided if we did that? And, and, and I don't think it's just irony. I think it's that God was trying to avoid the slaughter of babies by having these people destroyed. And that, again, morally and ethically, that's a difficult discussion. Um, we also see in Ju Ju Josephus, in the Antiquities of the Jews, Book 14, Chapter 15, Section 2, that Herod was no more than a private man. He was an Edomian. He was an Edomite. And so he's called that even in secular sources. His son, Herod the Tetrarch, is known for beheading John the Baptist in Matthew Chapter 14. We just covered that. This is the, this is the legacy of the Amalekites. There's some indications, and some people believe, that Judas Iscariot, was also of Edomite blood. I don't see that in the Bible, so I don't want to go too far with it, but it's an interesting thought to bring up to y'all. Um, that uh, How many more evils do we not know about because they're not in the Word of God, because Saul didn't obey God in this sense? So it comes back to that question, of who do you, if you're not going to worship God Almighty, who are you going to worship? Right? What's the better alternative than to God? A God of love and mercy that does things with that motivation is when he has to make a command like this, there's probably some evil coming down the pipeline that he's trying to avoid. And that goes back to that argument of we're not God and we don't know God's ways. So from Saul's perspective, he probably thought this was pretty harmless. He's presumed a lot so far. He's probably doing the same thing. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel in verse 10, saying, I greatly regret that I've set up Saul as a king. For he's turned, his back, turned, turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Plural. It's not just this command. We've seen him in the last chapter break God's commands too. And it grieved Samuel. And he cried out to the Lord all night. This is just a great. This is one of the strongest passages in the Bible for free will. So if you, if you want like a free will argument for the Bible, this is an awfully good one. Um, why would God regret didn't God know this was going to happen at the beginning? And so that brings up that question. The phrase in verse 11, I deeply, I greatly regret, is in the Hebrew to be sorry, to have to console oneself. Uh, it's an anthropomorphism. It's using language that we can understand and applying it to a God that we can't understand. So the idea of regret isn't that God's like, ooh, shucks, I made a mistake there. But he's sorrow when it's God relating to humans, he has a deep sorrow for the free will of Saul going this direction versus that direction. God's hope for Saul is that he would be obedient to God's commands and he could be somebody that's celebrated and a champion for God's kingdom. So 
in that sense, when it says God regrets, it's kind of that image that as God relates to humans and gives them free will, he is allowing that free will in a way that he wants us to do the right thing. He regrets it when we don't. I don't think God regrets picking Saul because it's all ultimately going to play into the plan. But he's sorry that Saul picked himself. Does that make sense? A little bit? Like there's just this deepness. And I, and I also notice in verse 11 that it grieves Samuel. This had to be tough for Samuel. He's the guy that anointed him. He was part of putting Saul where he was. So it, it, and the response of Samuel is that he cries out to the Lord all night. He goes to the Lord in prayer. And it's not a sweet, nice prayer. It's crying out to the Lord. There's an emphatic there all night. Oh God, keep your judgment from Saul. Help turn his heart, change his mind. But as much as we pray for those things, when someone hardens their heart, we also don't control people through prayer. There is free will in how people choose and how people do things. So it's not that we're mad at those people, but we're deeply hurt and saddened by the choices they make. And I think almost everybody in this room, we got people in our family and friend networks that have made choices to not obey the Lord God Almighty. And it's not that we hate those people or push them away. We actually want to invite them in. But it breaks our heart, the choices they're making. It's hard to do that. So when we see Samuel crying all night for a guy that's disregarded God's commands again and again and again, we see the heart of a believer that wants the best for people, not somebody that just walks away from people. I just think it's wonderful. Verse 12, so when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself. <laughs> like, How does it get any worse for Saul? Start building monuments to yourself. That's the next stage of, of disobedience. For he, has gone, for he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down by Gilgal. And then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I've performed the commandments of the Lord. This had to be so grating on Samuel because he's hearing from God what's really going on. And he comes walking up and Saul is so deceived in his own pride. He's all proud of what he's done. And it's pretty hard to imagine like how setting up a monument for yourself um, would be in God's will. But there's no humility in Saul. There's no guilt. There's no shame. Like he's proudly announcing what he's done and he's self-promoting. He's putting a victory parade on for himself. This is what Saul walks up to. And he says, I've performed it. I, at least for me, we got to be really careful about pride in our life. Pride's ugly. Pride gets us to think we're doing God's will when we're not. And this is a dangerous place to be, right? Saul seems to think he's done good when he hasn't done God at all. And to do good is to not necessarily to do God. To do God is to do what God has told us to do, whether or not like we believe it's the right thing or not. It's what God's told us. There's clear instruction from God. So Saul seems to think he's done really good things, but they're not God things. And in that, they're not good things either. They're actually evil. But we can see how thick this deception gets. James says, chapter 1, verse 8, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. When you're thinking of yourself more than God, you're unstable. There's no foundation there. So when he comes up and he just says, blessed are you of the Lord. Wow, for Samuel, like think of the news you got to break to this guy. So many people think we get deceived by Satan, and we, we can and we do. But the first most 
immediate threat to our spiritual life is that we deceive ourselves. And we start to think that we're doing what God wants us to do. So Saul does this on purpose. Verse 14, but Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Literally the evidence of his disobedience is right in front of him. This is another indicator of pride. When people are full of pride, they don't realize how thinly we all see through it, right? When people puff themselves up, it's pretty easy to see that that's not real. So we see God do this a lot where he asks questions like, you know, what have you done? Esau, what have you done? Or when, when God says to the woman in Genesis 3, 13, Eve would be that woman. What is it that you've done? And we see God ask that question a lot. Like, and Samuel's kind of reflecting that question like, what if, what, what is it, what's the bleeding of the sheep that I hear? Please explain to me what's happened. And I think sometimes those questions come because they're one last opportunity for our heart to break before God. When Nathan goes to David and says, what have you done? David's heart absolutely breaks before God. You remember? And he repents of what he did, right? <clears throat> doesn't mean God doesn't correct him or punishment. But that idea of God giving us that question. We as parents do this with our kids all the time. You come home and the house is a disaster and there's flour on the walls and the dog's tied up in ribbons. And you come in and you say something like, so what have you done here? And my kids have never actually gone to that extreme. But the question isn't that we can't see what's happened. The question is because we want to see how our kids perceive what has happened. And that's what Samuel's doing with the sheep and the oxen. Like, what's going on with this? And frankly, there's a right and a wrong answer to this question. And this I have taught my kids. When we ask you what you've done, <laughs> there's a right answer to that question, which is, I really screwed up. I'm sorry. That's the correct answer. Like if a boss approaches you and says, so what did you do with these spreadsheets here? Like you should find out what's going on in that situation. And the right answer is, shoot, I screwed up. That'll never happen again. The wrong answer is to make a thousand excuses. So let's see what that looks like. Verse 15, and Saul says, they brought them up from the Amalekites. So he blames the people of Israel for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. Well, we've utterly destroyed everything, but not quite. And the people are at fault for this. So he starts making excuses. Um, and then he says, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. So is that a lie? Is he being honest? Did they honestly keep the best of the animals in order to sacrifice them to God? Or is he just making that up right now? If you look at verse 19, just skip down real quick. Why then did you not avoid the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul speaking with God's word on his tongue says that they swoop down on the spoil. So Saul is lying when he says this. So this is again what people do. They wanted easy gain. They took the spoil for themselves. That's what actually happened. But Saul's implying that they got all this stuff to sacrifice to the Lord, saying what he thinks Samuel wants to hear. When people are caught in a lie, they often say what, you what they think you want them to hear. Did I say that right? Okay. Um, and that's what Saul's doing. He's telling Samuel what he thinks Samuel wants to hear. And in other words, Saul's not understanding that this following God thing is about the heart. He's just missing it. He's thinking it's about these rituals and sacrifices. 
So given that the destructionist devotes something to God, he's thinking maybe this is an honest mistake, but in keeping them and giving them honest altar, that's still utterly destroying them. So he's conflating it because the word utterly destroy is a religious term used for sacrifices. So in the Hebrew, that is part of what it is. I don't think that's what God commanded here, but that might be the argument Saul's making. So let's dissect this deception just a little bit. Psalm 139, 23, Search me, O God, know my heart, know me, know my anxieties, and see if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So it's Saul blames the other people, says they have bought. Notice that this slips out. When people are lying, things slip out. He says, your God. Do you see that? Verse 15, to sacrifice to the Lord, your God. Whose God is it? Saul's not recognizing that this should be his God, to my God, to our God. There's lots of different ways to say that, but he actually slips here and he says this is Samuel's God and not, maybe not his own. So the rest we have, Saul includes himself there because it says the rest we have utterly destroyed. So Saul's including himself as part of the obedient aspect, but he doesn't take credit for they have brought them. He blames them for the disobedient part. So it's really easy to put himself in the room in one moment, but take himself out in the other moment. This is, again, you start dissecting these lies, and there's just problems all over in this sentence. We should be wise and learn from this. This is how people react when they're called out on their sin. And people with hard hearts will twist the words in a thousand different directions to get you to think that they're okay again. But this is also a lie in what he's saying here in, in just a variety of different ways. And again, compare this to David. David's told that he sinned, and David just repents of it. I'm so sorry. And you look at how Saul reacts to this situation with the prophet coming up saying, what have you done here? Samuel has enough of these little childlike excuses, and this is the second time now, we saw this in the last chapter too, that he's just so ready to rapid fire his excuses that at some point, I love this next sentence, you're already reading ahead, I bet. At some point, Saul just says, shut up, right? Just stop with the lies. Verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet, which in the Hebrew means shut up, right? Just stop with your lame excuses. Give it up. God knows what you're doing, Saul. You're not fooling anybody. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And then he, Saul, says to him, speak on. Wow, it's just so thick in this point, right? If someone, if a prophet of God came up to you and said, be quiet, let me tell you what God said to me last night. Would you then say something or would you just shut up? So when Saul says, speak on, he's actually disobeying the command he just got right there by opening his big mouth. Just Stop, Saul. Stop with these excuses. So Samuel did not need Saul's permission to speak. <laughs> he had permission and command from God to speak. But Saul still wants to prop himself up like he's in control of the situation. And he just can't do it. Verse 17. So Samuel says, When you were little in your own eyes, humble, were you not head of all the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you over a king of Israel? You know, really, he's saying, remember. Remember, Saul, when you weren't such a big shot? 
You were king of Israel and God put you there. Remember, that's where we started. Verse 18, now the Lord sent you on a mission and he said, go and utterly destroy the sinners. Seventh use. I'm sorry, that's the fifth use. Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. He reminds him of God's word. So it, it, verse 17, he tells him to remember his history. Verse 18, he reminds him of what God said. Verse 19, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Then he convicts him. You broke God's law. Remember when you first got saved and your relationship with God was so precious and so beautiful and so wonderful? Remember when God told you to do this or that and the other thing and you just did it? And life was simple and easy? Why then have you stopped doing it, Saul? Why did you stop obeying the Lord and actually do the opposite of what he said? What benefit do you think you had there? Again, I don't think these questions in verse 19 are to attack Saul. I think he's doing it out of love for Saul. Like judgment looks a lot different than this. This is a prophet still trying to train and teach and guide and get humility out of Saul. He even reminds him of it in 17. When you were little. This answers the question above that Saul was making excuses. He was lying. The word swoop there is the word eat. It's an onomatopoeia. It's like to shriek like a bird. Like when a bird comes down and hits its prey. Eat! And it makes that noise. Literally in the Hebrew, it's the word eat. Why did you greedily eat or hork things like evil? Why was it so appealing to you? When we do evil, we often don't do it begrudgingly. We do it with that eat-like attitude, like I'm going to do it. right? People don't just do evil because they have to. They're like a dog going for vomit. They do it because they want to. And the question he asked Saul in 19 is, why did you want to do this? What motivation did you have? So Saul points out, here's... Here's your history, here's God's word, here's the rebellion that you had. He points out his sin, just like Nathan does with David, just like Jesus does with us. You know, it's, hey, the commandments say don't murder, but if you even don't like somebody in your heart, you're guilty of murder. You've put somebody else beneath yourself. That's not Jesus being nice to us. He's pointing out our sins. And if we understand that we are sinful creatures, then redemption looks really wonderful. Salvation looks really appealing if we come to terms with the fact that we've sinned. So that's what Samuel's doing with Saul here. Here's God's word, and here's how you broke it. Why? And verse 20, Saul says to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agog, king of the Amalekites. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people took the plunder and the sheep and the auction and the best of the things that would have utterly been destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. You know, at this point, it's like, wow, just wow, Saul. You can't stop, can you? Like, this isn't the answer that Samuel is looking for. And, and he's so convinced. You get this tone in here that Saul's just utterly convinced himself that he's doing God's will when he, when he just got told what God's will was and how he's breaking God's will. I pray, God, I never have this heart of a heart that if people can show me from the word of God what I'm not doing right or if I'm doing something against my God, 
that I can have at least enough sense to break my heart before the Lord. I'm so sorry. It's a scary ability that humans have to rewrite history on the fly. Because when our pride and our, our will gets into it, we will reinvent conversations. No, you said this. This is what you said. To the point where people get so convinced in the lie, they actually believe it. And that's what I see with Saul right now. He's actually believing his own lie. And you just think, this is, this is crazy. 1 Corinthians 3.18, guard against self-deception, each of you. If someone among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become foolish so that he can become wise. Stop thinking we know it all. We don't. And if there's any other thing there that we should learn from this passage, Saul is, was guilty of rebellion, but now he's guilty of stubbornness. Which one's worse? And progressively, the stubbornness is worse than the rebellion. To call your actions good when they're actually evil, that's worse than the actions. Right? I don't mind when people make mistakes, but when people are going to call those mistakes good, that's a really tough thing to deal with. Right? This should be set apart as though God spoke to Samuel in the moment, this next passage, in its response to Saul's doublespeak. Here's why I say that. Verse 22 starts with, So Samuel said. What Samuel walked in to talk to Saul with was God's word to Saul. But it almost seems in verse 22 that now that Saul has said that his stuff was not a problem, he's doubling down on his sin, then, or so Samuel says, it's because of Saul's response that Samuel gets this. So Samuel didn't walk in the door with this next punishment from God. Saul could have repented here and maybe had a lot better kingship. But because he's being stubborn, this is what Samuel says. Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed the fat of the rams, and to heed than the fat of rams. God doesn't need our sacrifice. Never has. And so people say, oh, the Old Testament God, he needed all. No, God doesn't need the sacrifice. He wants the obedience. He wants the heart. And the sacrifices, remember, for them were a form of tithe. It's just letting go of a portion of their gain every year. So they're not clinging to money, right? And so in the New Testament, that tithe doesn't really go away. It's part of how we just release things and let them go so we don't cling. So Samuel says, Is the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as inequity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. Wow. Notice that Samuel, I want to just go back through this one more time. Verse 17, remember when you were humble? You didn't know all the answers? Verse 18, here's what God said. Verse 19, why did you not do this? Verse 20 through 21, but I did. He rejects the word of the Lord. I disagree with God on this point. And then in verse 20, God wanted obedience, not that. Verse 23, rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. That was wrong. It's not good to rebel. But then, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. He's accused of both rebellion and stubbornness. Rebellion in the action, stubbornness and an unwillingness to repent. So the consequence, if you reject the word of the Lord, 
is that he rejects you. This is an interesting phrasing. It doesn't say because you rejected the Lord. It says you rejected the word of the Lord. You reject what God says. And if you deny what God says, why do you think God's on your side? He rejects him not as a human, but from being king. You will not be king. So this is judgment. God initially started the chapter with judgment from the Amalekites, but the judgment lands on his own king of Israel just as much as on the Amalekites. Not much to explain here. Basically, excuses don't work with God. There's nothing that defends you before the Almighty God when you have to own up to your sin. There's only one defense. And you guys know this because I like the gospel. Jesus died for my sins. That's all you got. That's the best defense in the world, but in our flesh it seems so small. Like that's our only defense. Really, I have to stand before God in judgment and he points out my sins and I just say, but Jesus died for my sins and I follow the king. That's all I've got to hang on to. And that salvation should be something we grip tighter to than anything else. So the word of God lands. The debate is over. (laughs) This isn't a discussion anymore. Obedience is better than ritual. Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Jesus gave his life for you. You give your life for Jesus. Count the cost in that. That's a big trade. Note that Samuel is likely to have coached David in these words that he gave to Saul, right? Because as he's raising Samuel, he's checking in on David as he's a young man moving into the kingship. There's a lot of years between David's anointing and when he becomes king. And you can bet that Saul's investing a lot into David. And he probably taught David again and again and again. I remember when Saul was humble like you. But you know what happened to Saul? Chapter 15. And so you can bet that a lot of what's going on with Saul right now is part of how David got raised in his leadership. And David doesn't make the same mistakes, even after Samuel's gone and Nathan's the prophet. Hosea 6.6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. The Levitical offering system was for a season. God still wants our hearts. It's never changed. Coming to Bible study or church doesn't save you. You guys know that, right? And some of you are really faithful. You're like, I'm going to, like Zach said before, I'm going to carve out part of my life to get to Bible study every week because God says to spend time in his word. So some of you do that, but that doesn't save you. What saves you is your commitment to the Lord God that comes right from your heart. It's a, a request of God to come into your life and save you from your sin. So it's just such a powerful passage that we see here. You've rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you. That's perfect justice. Makes total sense, right? You reject God, he rejects you. You want to worship yourself? He's not going to go into that lie with you, right? He's not going to be part of it. Comparison to witchcraft, idolatry. Saul's convinced himself that he's doing good stuff. And Samuel's point there is it's not good stuff to disobey God. It's just as bad as the stuff you think is evil stuff. Witchcraft, idolatry. It's just as nasty. Then... Verse 24, Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I might worship the Lord. You know, at a first glance, that sounds right, doesn't it? That's a good thing. 
but it's a little too little too late after he doubled down on things. Samuel caught him in his lie, so now he's caught, and if you really read these words, it's a half apology. He doesn't really apologize for the sin that he was accused of, rebellion and stubbornness, and he never repents of those things. So this is what a false apology looks like. You hate to get into this stuff, but it's human nature. It makes us wiser when we encounter this. This is somebody caught in their lie. Have you ever caught somebody in a lie? And then they give a half, like, oh, I'm sorry you caught me in my lie. That's the apology. That's not like, I'd call that a half apology. It's not a real one. Um, So let's get some wisdom here and break this down. He says, I sinned, but then look at how he says, because the people, right? I sinned because I feared the people. So he's really still blaming the people for what he did wrong. He's not taking his own responsibility. Evil can't just admit it's wrong. Evil becomes an excuse factory. This is how we hide ourselves from God's will. It just keeps churning and it never stops, even to the point of ridiculousness. Maybe I'm being too harsh with Saul. Um, You know, he kept a few fluffy sheep alive. What's the big deal? But it's not about the sheep. It's about the heart with, with he did this. The idea that he feared the people, he's actually in his half apology making another disobedience to God's statement because he can't stop. Who is he supposed to fear? What's the command for kings? You're supposed to fear the Lord God, your Almighty, not fear people. So he, in saying, I feared the people, he's apologizing for something that is also a sin, and, and, and he's making excuses that are also sins. Like, because I feared the people is a reason why he sinned, but that in itself is a sin too. So it just, it, it's layer upon layer. Word of God says, do not fear do not, in fact, specifically, Numbers 14.9, only do not rebel against the Lord, which is what he's accused of, nor fear the people of the land, which he just admitted to. So it just keeps coming. He asks Samuel to pardon him. Who should he be asking to pardon him? God. Thank you, Paul. God. So when he, he goes, when he goes to Samuel and says, please pardon my sin, he's, he's thinking like Samuel is just speaking for Samuel. Not that Samuel's reminding him of the word of God Almighty. So he doesn't return or or put himself before the Lord. He doesn't rend his clothing. He doesn't do any of the traditional things we've seen for remorse in his actions. In fact, all he wants is for Samuel to return with him, verse 25, that he might worship the Lord. He just wants to be seen as having the, the prophet on his side. He wants the people to see him walking around with Samuel. It's funny because Samuel's gonna play along with this for a little bit because Samuel, there's still the word of God hanging out there, which is destroy the Amalekites, right? And Saul's showing that he doesn't have the will to do it um, and he's not going to do it. So, um, verse 26, but Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you've rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So Samuel models a clear biblical theme that we've seen before. We're going to see it again. There is a point when someone's heart is so hardened that you just say, I don't need to hang out with you anymore. And this is kind of really, if you think about it, it's fairly gracious. Samuel's heart is after the Lord. Saul's heart is not. And all Samuel's saying is, I don't need to be hanging out with you anymore. You're not interested in the ways of God. You reject my God. Uh, It's for God to handle you. But notice Samuel doesn't, 
judge him or continue to, to, to attack him or go on and on and on in some sort of weird argument that's just bickering with somebody. He doesn't do that. He's just like, you know, I'm kind of done with you. Once we've defined it, once light has been shined on the lie, once Saul's proven that he's not going to give it up, um, Samuel has no need or no obligation to this guy. Um, it's between him and God at this point. It's a heart issue. Verse 27, as Samuel turned around to go away, he's actually walking away from him. Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. That's a pretty hefty grasp on the robe, right? So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. <laughs> like these aren't friendly words, right? So he's just going after him. It's not revealed yet, <clears throat> but this neighbor that he's talking about is David. That's the person who's going to get it. God's already, we know David hangs out with God in the fields. God's already spending time with David as a shepherd boy, hanging out under the stars. So God's already working with David and fixing his heart. Saul's grip, his tightly grasping grip of the robe, actually rips it. His tight grip doesn't do what he thinks it should do. It actually rends everything he wants away, and it causes a tear. Um, <clears throat> we get a contrast in kings. There's King Saul, who clings to things, and there's Jesus, who lets go of things. There's Saul that ruins and disobeys. There's Jesus, who saves and obeys. Jesus gains everything and conquers all. Saul is constantly at battle with things, and he loses the kingship entirely. There's the kingship of this world and there's the kingship of Jesus Christ. Verse 29, And also the strength of Israel will not lie or relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Didn't we just see that God re repent? Like, wait a second. This is an interesting word. In verse 11, go back and look at the word that got used in relation to God. So when Samuel says this, <clears throat> you see a flip in the use of the word. And that's no accident, right? So if God does not relent in verse 11, and here it says the strength of Israel, God, will not lie or relent, it says God won't relent. So which is it? Does God relent? Does God not relent? Maybe this is not a conundrum for some of you. Um, but is really the way this gets handled, the way I would handle this is, in verse 11, Saul's choices are being made that causes God to relate to man with just a sadness that man keeps choosing these things. So there's a relenting when it comes to how God deals with humans based on free will. That's anthropomorphic. It's applying attributes to God and how he relates to humans that we can understand. In this verse, he's not relating to man. This is how man relates to God. Saul has asked for God to change his mind. God doesn't need to change his mind. So when it comes to how God deals with humans, it works the opposite direction. That would be theomorphic, the application of attributes to God when man relates to God, assuming that God is like man. And they're very different. And I think that the same word being used in the two verses shows that contrast. And it's really interesting because in verse 29, it's applied to Saul. God doesn't regret himself. God doesn't lie and he doesn't relent of himself. He's made a judgment, and once that judgment's made, he's not going back. Now, when it comes to the whole idea that God will judge humanity, once that judgment trigger gets pulled, 
that bullet goes out of the gun and it never comes back. So in this decision being made about Saul, how God is relating to Saul's decisions, he regrets the fact that Saul didn't choose a better path. But when it comes to Saul asking God to change his mind, God's like, I'm not going to change. Mine's been made up. I've your heart has made the decision. So God can regret human decisions, but not necessarily his own decisions. I hope that helps. God is not a man. That point gets made here in verse 29. He is not a man. And oftentimes when we deal with God, we want to ascribe to God traits that look like humanity, but God is not a human. He is God. And he will do, his ways are higher than our ways. And, and that, that's an eternal truth. Saul is done as the king. It won't happen immediately. It's going to happen in about 25 years. So even when God makes this decision now, there's still 25 human years that will pass before Saul's removed from the kingship. But God's training of David, his anointing of David, his hand of working with David moves over here. I believe God has done that with the church for 2,000 years. That when God's hand is removed from one wing of the church because they're no longer obeying God, he starts doing a new thing over here. And the, the spirit of God's church and the ministry of God's people grows and it happens actively as God just moves his hand over to the next group of people that actually want to obey him and serve him. And he'll bless those people as long as they do that. Verse 30, then he said, I've sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I might worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. <clears throat> Notice Saul's still asking, yet honor me now, please. He's recognizing that Samuel is representing all the power. And Saul's just understanding what he's just lost. And in some sense, walking away from Saul was the best thing Samuel could have done to get Saul's heart to turn around. And again, this requires a lot of discernment. It's not to say we walk away from everybody, but when God is trying to move in somebody's heart, sometimes that has to happen. <clears throat> so Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. There is still mercy at the end of all this. I think that's amazing, right? The disobedience, everything. He's got other plans, of course. Samuel's going to use this. And he go, it's almost like the Lord told him, oh, I got one more thing for you to do, Samuel. So then Samuel said, verse 32, bring Agog, the king of the Amalekites, here to me. So God came to him cautiously, which means in the Hebrew, cheerfully or in a dainty way. Agog's like lighthearted about it all. He's just, you know, the king has already pardoned him. So what's he scared of this little old prophet man, right? There's nothing to be scared of here. He thinks he's off. Off, uh, off with smiles, so to speak. So the word cautiously in the Hebrew, we see that back in chapter Genesis 49, 20. It's a reference to little sweets or little dainties. So he comes up to him, to, to Samuel, and he's like, what, what, you know, uh, what do you got? What do you have for me? So Agog says, surely the bitterness of death is past. Surely we're all over. Our, you know, Agog's in a weak spot here, but he's like, surely Samuel, like, we're done with the killing now, right? Because he's trying to save his own life. Um, <clears throat> no harm, no foul, right? No problem. But Samuel said, verse 33, your sword has made women childless. He's killed babies. So your mother shall be childless among women. That's justice. And Samuel hacked Agog in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. If Saul's not going to do the job, 
Samuel does the job. But the job's going to get done. So Agog gets killed. We know that there's descendants of Agog, so we know that there's Amalekites that got away because Saul didn't do the complete destruction thing. Um, <clears throat> but smack, Agog's not going to survive the day. Uh, he does this in front of the court of Saul, so Saul thought that he was going to get the support of his prophet. He actually gets the prophet doing his own thing. Hacked Agag in pieces. Sasap, Agag, Sasap. It's a dual use. In the Hebrew, that's emphatic. So when it sounds harsh, the Hebrew is written that way. It's supposed to sound harsh. This is a brutal slaughter of a guy in front of the entire court. The only use of this in the entire Bible, it literally means to cut somebody to pieces. He hacked Agog, and then he kept hacking. This is like when Grant encountered the snake with the lawnmower, right? It's the same kind of ter term that's getting used there, sasap. It's kind of the sound the lawnmower makes when it, yeah. Verse 34, then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went to his house up at Gibeah of Saul, they both go their own ways. They both go back to their hometowns. <clears throat> to our knowledge in the Bible, this is the last time Samuel and Saul ever speak. They're done with each other. Samuel's like, I've, God's made a measure of you, and he's lifted his hand. I don't have any more time for you. Verse 35, and Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is kind of sad, right? Saul has not been a great biblical character for us. Um, even though Saul walks away from, or Samuel walks away from Saul, I just see this as instructive for myself, right? He mourns for Saul. It's not walking away in anger or in hate or in some legalistic, I will not have any dealings with you because you are not holy. Samuel mourned for Saul. This parting of ways between these two people that have spent a good part of their life together was not an easy thing for Samuel to do. It's heartbreaking. But his hope is that Saul comes back around. Maybe. Maybe at his deathbed he'll come back around. We shouldn't as Christians walk away from people that are rejecting God with any kind of hate in our heart. We should do it with a deep sorrow in our heart. These people are choosing another path. 2 Peter 2.12 But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they don't understand, and they'll utterly perish in their own corruption. That should make us sad. That should make us sorrowful for these people. They're on their way to hell. This regretting of Samuel is the same kind of regretting that God had. Just this heartbrokenness over people that are lost. They can reject the salvation of the Lord even the promise of the forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> when someone's capable of rejecting God's love, that's terrifying. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to, rep to repentance. Sadly, there are people that will not come to repentance, but that's not God's will, and it's not God's heart. God's heart for Saul was that he would repent. He gave him every opportunity to do it. And I think God's going to be the same way with all the people on the earth. He's going to give people every opportunity and every reason to repent. And you are the instrument of that with a lot of the people that you know. You are the Samuel in their life. You're the one that's supposed to help them remember what an 
innocent, loving relationship with an almighty God is to the heart. Remember when you were a child and you just knew God was watching you? Remember that feeling? We're the ones that, like Samuel, introduces the word of God to people. What you're doing is wrong. The Bible says this and you're doing this. And in those situations, that's not always easy. Some people are going to reject it and they're going to take that loving counsel and they're just going to reject it. And that's a tough situation to be in. So like Samuel, he prays for Saul, he mourns for Saul, and he goes after Saul, even as Saul's kind of grabbing at his robe, he still goes back. Um, but if Agag and the Amicalites are any image of sin, what Samuel does is he personally gets rid of the sin in that person's life. You know, he gets rid of that idol. <clears throat> I would have thought it neat if Samuel went and tore down the memorial that Saul built for himself. That might have been a good thing to get rid of while he was there. Uh, but he takes care of Agog, and then he goes his own way, his own separate way. So a sad chapter in that sense. <clears throat> the good news is as the Bible shows us Saul in this horrible chapter of Israel's history, we're going to start to see what God does to rebuild a new kingdom under David. Uh, that's one we can look at that mirrors what Jesus Christ looks like. So we'll see the example of a good leader, even a good leader that sins and isn't perfect. But we see how David responds to very similar situations in a more righteous way than Saul does. And in that, we can learn and be living a life that looks more like God wants us to live. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word is its sometimes hard to hear. Uh, but Lord, change our hearts. If the Bible step on our toes, like may our toes be the thing that moves. Uh, but because your word is eternal and it's there for us. Lord, we don't want to back away from the tough parts at all. We don't want to skip over these parts. Help them instruct our hearts to be more wise, to be aware of what pride looks like, what lies look like, what excuses sound like, what false apologies sound like. Lord, help us to be wise to those things so that we, uh, we can better love the people around us and that we can, we can hear people for, in a spiritual sense because you've given us examples that we can learn from. So Lord, help us to take these things, to move forward in love and in grace, uh, to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus, uh, to boldly point people to your word, uh, and to do it just with, with the kind of courage and the kind of strength that Samuel does. Lord, I, I pray for your anointing on each person in this room. There's no accident that we're here together, and what a joy that we get to fellowship together. So Lord, I just thank you for each person here. May they go forward with your spirit in their heart. May they be renewed, refreshed, and fed by your word. Uh, and Lord, just uh, in everything they do, uh, honor you in their actions and in their words uh, so that we represent the kingdom of God in a powerful way. We thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice he gave for our lives. So I pray each person in this room is just well aware of their sin, not out of shame, or, but out of an appreciation that you've covered that sin, Lord, that you, you've forgiven that sin. It's as far as the east is from the west. So I just pray for each person in this room, Lord, that we go forward in the confidence of our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, 
insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.